We turn in the scriptures this morning for our Old Testament lesson, which comes from Daniel 5. We'll read the uh, entire chapter. This is the text from which the sermon will be derived for this morning. Daniel chapter 5, I'll be reading from the ESV. You can just listen along or follow along, whatever your choice is. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand, and his lords, and they drank wine in front of a thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem, be brought that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine, and they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, his knees knocked together. And the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and show me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. And then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his Lords were perplexed. Now the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers, because an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel? one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you give interpretations and solve problems." Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. 
And because of the greatness that he gave to him, all peoples, nations, languages trembled in fear before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. Whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. And he was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he wills. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. This is the interpretation of the manner. matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided among and given to the Medes and the Persians. And then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be a third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about... 62 years old, thus the reading of God's word. The handwriting is on the wall. Isn't it interesting that we have attested in modern English language a legacy of Daniel 5, the handwriting is on the wall, which communicates in our speech kind of approach of judgment for one's offenses or perhaps imminent a doom, a kind of deterministic conclusion that certain events are, are surely about ready to come about. Um, they communicate, at least in secular society, a kind of certainty of a bleak end. So, for example, the fall of an unstable financial institution, or even looking on somebody who has chronic illness or terminal illness and the cloud of death, uh, hangs over them, and you can see that the handwriting is on the wall. Lord Byron, the famous literati, had a short poem that he wrote about Belshazzar. It goes like this. Belshazzar's grave is made, his kingdom passed away. He in the balance weighed his light and worthless clay. The shroud, his robe of state, his canopy, the stone. The mead is at the gate, the Persian at his throne. Well, Belshazzar throws a great drinking banquet for his people. In Daniel 1, if you remember, a month or so back, we noticed the issue of defilement was front and center in the text. And so, too, the issue of defilement is front and center here in Daniel 5 as well. 
For now this arrogant and very proud king will take the vessels that his predecessor had captured from Jerusalem and drink wine out of them in this great banquet that he's thrown. But in a very subtle shift of words, the narrator portrays Daniel, the prophet, who speaks in the name of God Most High about events before they even come to pass. Did you notice the very subtle change in the um, enumeration of the vessels? When Belshazzar, in verse 4, or the narrator, records what Belshazzar is about to do, he says they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. But when Daniel speaks, as a prophet of the Lord, he says, verse 23, you have drunk and praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now, if you remember going back to the kingdoms that we discussed in chapter 2, the gold head of the Colossus statue represented Nebuchadnezzar, the king and majestic ruler of the Neo-Babylonian kingdom. And the silver represented the Medo-Persian kingdom and the kingdoms that would follow. Here we have in the narrative occurring on the eve of the Babylonian kingdom coming to its end, and the Medo-Persian period uh, emerging, the transposition of these materials. Instead of gold and silver, it's silver and gold. So already Daniel is hinting in his uh, narration about what is going to come to pass. No wonder the king is so shocked and alarmed. In the last chapter, his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had been reduced to a bird beast. But in this chapter... Belshazzar is going to hear and has heard that his own kingdom is about ready to collapse. So as we march through this chapter, let us know there is, first of all, in verses 1 through 4, the sacrilege of the holy vessels, the sacrilege of the holy vessels. Now, the first thing that a lay reader of this chapter uh, may notice is that Belshazzar is called King Belshazzar in verse 1, and the son of Nebuchadnezzar. And moreover, in verse 11, Daniel, when he speaks to him, uh, refers to Nebuchadnezzar as his father. But we know from the historical annals that are extant that this is not the case. And so this may thrust a lay reader into questioning whether this is an accurate portrayal of what really came to pass. But, thankfully, it worked done in 1929, brought all the cuneiform, that is, Babylonian or Akkadian sources, um, to publication. And it demonstrated there are plausible answers uh, for this conundrum or this difficulty. Because the word father in the ancient world, and in documents contemporaneous with this, could be used to refer to a predecessor, not merely a father. Uh, but Belshazzar, because Belshazzar's true father was away in Timnah, his name was Nabonidus, performing other duties at the time. And Belshazzar is probably indeed uh, acting as a co-regent at this time, precisely a kind of subordinate to his father Nabonidus, who's attending to other duties in other parts of the kingdom. But nevertheless, they were regal duties. So our conclusion here is that Belshazzar was a kind of co-regent. 
and indeed he was probably subordinate ultimately to his father Nabonidus. Nevertheless, it must be recognized that Daniel in and of itself is not a Neo-Babylonian official court record or document. It's a document written by a Jew for Jews to encourage them in their faith. And Daniel does not assert, assert that he's the sole monarch. He merely calls him king because he's producing and performing uh, regal activities. And so the king, Belshazzar, holds a banquet, more likely a drinking bout where there would be celebration and song as well in order to praise the idols and, uh, and tip the hat towards them. It was a Bacchanalian context. Some of you may wonder whether the numbers are exaggerated uh, that he had this many people before him. But we actually have extant records of um, 10,000 guests, for example, at the marriage of Alexander the Great. A similar feast was held for the last of the Ptolemies. And Athenaeus relates that the Persian king fed 15,000 people from his table daily. The scene can be painted in the following manner. The palace room, we know from archaeological records, had plaster walls. It would have been 52 meters by 17 meters. A little tight for a 1,000 people, but not incomprehensible. We know that the walls, uh, the palace of Babylon, were covered in plaster. Interestingly, the word for white plaster here in Aramaic is actually chalk. And what's interesting about that is, therefore, any dark objects moving over this white plastered wall uh, would stand out particularly. And in accordance with the ancient Near Eastern custom, the king would sit at a table, slightly elevated, uh, before all his guests, and his uh, guests would sit in attendance there before him. In such a feast, the drinking of wine was known to be a predominant element. The king seems to feel the influence of the wine because he loses a sense of decency when he calls upon uh, the bringing out of the vessels to drink wine out of them that were snatched out of the Jerusalem temple uh, by his predecessor. The focus is more on the holy goblets than the dangers of excessive drinking here, although there was plenty of the latter going on as well. Now, why does Belshazzar choose these goblets? I mean, he's the king. Surely he didn't run out of everyday glassware. Um, no, but he trifles with Nebuchadnezzar's war booty or plunder, something it seems that Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't even um, delve into participating in because he treated him with respect and value. He's not only committing blasphemy, he combines it with idolatry. Or as our own, not to embarrass him, Dave Van Drunen says, Belshazzar does not commit three separate sins, but one threefold sin. In a drunken stupor, he defiles the vessels of God's temple, using them for the worship of idols and not honoring the God whose vessels they are. In this sacrilege, Belshazzar has done something that apparently Nebuchadnezzar himself, in all his arrogance, never did. So idolatry per se is not the charge. Dishonoring the Lord in wanton hubris, that is pride, by using his holy things for pagan worship, that is the basis of Belshazzar's judgment. Close quote. We don't know what was going on exactly in Belshazzar's mind, but he probably offended a lot of 
people who had various deities that day, but notice that he singles out Yahweh here. So this narrator is communicating an act that would be like spitting on God's very face. So what happens when the writing appears upon the wall? Look at verses 5 through 12. Whereas Belshazzar's father or predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had seen a miracle in the fiery furnace in Daniel 3, now Belshazzar is going to see a hand appear out of nowhere and actually write with fingers on a white plaster wall, another miracle. In front of the large candelabrum near the lampstand, your text says, the writing would have been clear, and probably not just to the king, but to all those in attendance. So the king is shocked out of his drunken stupor. The color of his face changes, but there is more. Some scholars have said that they don't find any justification for humor in the text at this point. I beg to differ. They're just plain wrong. What happens next, beware, is rated PG. Uh, Verse 6 is where we have the description of what happens. And there have been many different translations describing the king's response. For example, the ESV says, Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, his knees knocked together. The King James Version says, The joints of his loins were loosened. The RSV says, His limbs gave way. The Jerusalem Bible, a Catholic Bible, says that his his thigh joints went slack. The Berkeley edition, another Catholic Bible, says the muscles of his loins loosened. But I say the Germans get it right when they declare, Die Hosen verhaben, he has filled his trousers. In other words, yes, it's funny. In other words, as one scholar has proposed, he refers to the king's panic-stricken loss as fainter control. He's dirtied his diaper. He soiled his pants. And moreover, some of the same words, untying knots, which are used in verses 12 and 16, they don't really come out in your translation, but are nevertheless a mocking and ironic allusion to this ignominious incontinence on the king's part. When the narrator says the fingers passed in front of him, the text says the knots, ketar, of his loins were loosened, shorah, chapter 5, verse 6. When the queen mother, possibly Nebuchadnezzar's wife, comes in, a kind of queen mother, she informed the king of one, namely Daniel, who could solve shara puzzles, ketar, knots. When Daniel appears finally before the king, the king says, I understand you can solve shara puzzles, knots, ketar. So there's a tone of egoism and haughtiness, ironically, in what the king says. But the meaning is basically unknown to the characters of the story. But we do have an instance of dramatic irony here with double entendre. The audience, Aramaic-speaking Jews, would have been rollicking in laughter. The king has made a fool of himself before the prophet of the Lord. This is good humor. As a Jewish author who's written on Jonah says, not on this book, but on another book, Humor is not necessarily the same thing as irreverent jesting, close quote. But this, this is funny. Daniel's interpretation of the inscription, verses 13 to 28, 
course, you probably already noticed the strong parallels this chapter has with the previous one, chapter 4. But did you notice the principal difference? Almost all books, articles, commentators mention and observe this. We have a king in chapter 5 who is sacrilegious, and he does not receive mercy from the prophet or from God, but rather he receives a rather direct and blunt challenge by the prophet, whereas in the previous chapter we had an overbearing king who ultimately did receive mercy after he repented. Of course, none of us is called upon to play the unique role that Daniel did in his day during his Babylonian tenure. God judges, but we cannot. As Pastor Keel has been emphasizing in his series on Job's, Job, none of us have a direct pipeline to God's mind. It is a dangerous enterprise to read into providence. We are called upon to speak the truth for the hope of the gospel that resides in us when we're asked, and we should unequivocally do so with compassion and grace. You remember when our friend, former Senator Ben Sass, gave his opening statements at the Senate hearing of Supreme Court judicial candidate Amy Coney Barrett? He did so with panache. He had to remind the committee on national TV, it's well worth watching if you haven't watched it, that religious liberty is a God-given right of the First Amendment. And then he went on to say, this committee, framing up the interview, is not in the business of determining which religious beliefs are weird among the potential candidates. He went on to say in a true Daniel-like moment, as someone who is self-consciously a Christian, we have a bunch of weird, crazy ideas. Forgiveness of sins, the virgin birth, resurrection from the dead, mind you, all miracles. What Judge Barrett believes about God is irrelevant to this governmental Senate committee. Now, probably very few in this room, though not possibly some, will ever find themselves on a similar stage or with a platform like Ben. However, all of us in this culture at this time have opportunities to stand for the truth when asked. For example, this side of the recent sexual revolution. Now, I'm not just singling out sex here, but sexual revolution is an index of culture's most basic beliefs. When asked to define what the Bible's position is on sexual chastity, which will sound antiquated at best to most these days, we should answer boldly and without equivocation, even as Heidelberg Catechism 108 does for us. Like Daniel, we should exercise our dual citizenship responsibly, one in the civil kingdom and the other in our spiritual kingdom. Daniel does show us what it means to live a hyphenated existence, as a God-fearing believer in a common grace period. However, none of us are in a position that Daniel was to speak prophetically a prophecy of doom and judgment bluntly before Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, or a king, Belshazzar in particular. I would hazard a guess that the Christian community in the West is usually characterized by the watching world as unhelpfully judgmental, self-righteous, even as the woman sitting on the stool next to me in the San Diego airport told me the reason why she left the church 
once she found out what I do for a living, it's often a segue to a conversation. <laughs> because she picked up the exact attitude in the church, in the youth group to which she was going, and now no longer attended church because of that. We must remember to mix our posture with forgiving, compassionate, gracious, redemptive words. Those to whom we speak should pick up immediately, intuitively, that we exude an attitude but for the grace of God. There I would go too, no matter how egregious or heinous the sin that's being talked about. It's never say when someone suffers, moreover, that there is an integral link between a person who suffers and conclude, aha, God's judgment. Think of Jesus' disciples. Bear with me for a minute, because this is so timely. Who were quick to judge when they looked at the blind man and they gave their knee-jerk reaction by questioning Jesus. Quote, John 9, Rabbi, who sinned here? This man or his parents? So that he was born blind. Jesus responded, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God may be displayed in his life. Close quote. See, our role in this new covenant age is to offer the good news of repentance and restoration. Daniel 4, if you will, not Daniel 5. Daniel, on the other hand, was a recipient of God's direct revelation. He had the authority to address Belshazzar in these firm, direct, blunt words. But we are to offer the words of life, not condemnation to this world. Oh, there are times when we should be firm during this new covenant age until Christ returns. But our message should always be pointing to the gospel. The main point here is that God does not countenance hubris, pride on the part of secular kings. In Daniel 1 to 5, we have been examining as again Dr. Van Drunen has written, God does not, in terms of his temporal governance and temporal judgments, require relinquishments of idols, specific rituals of worship, or any kind of conversion to the Mosaic Covenant. Rather, he requires kings to recognize humbly his ultimate sovereignty over the course of history and to keep their hands off his holy things and his hands off those who worship him. Close quote. So Daniel refuses the gifts that the king offers, verse 17. Some of you seem particularly interested in this facet earlier in the month. So just let me say, uh, for the record, I don't think he rejects them out of fear, nor because he is being rude, and also a careful analysis of the particular verses in question will show just how polite he is being. But it seems that he wishes to make it plain that he has no desire for earthly or personal gain or advantage. By his refusal early on, he makes it abundantly clear that come what may, he is resolved to declare the truth. So what does the writing on the wall mean? Why were the Babylonians unable to interpret it? Various explanations have been given. Uh, in the ancient world, some rabbis said that Menemene Tekel Paris was written uh, consonants only, no vocalization, because that's how it would have been, vertically, and therefore it was hard to interpret. Others have said that perhaps it was an unfamiliar Aramaic script, and so the Babylonian magicians and astrologers uh, 
courtiers who were called in had difficulty understanding it. But the best suggestion, originally given in 1886 and then um, further developed in recent years, is that 26 to 28, the verses about interpretation of the inscription, amount to a play on words. You see, the original consonants of the Aramaic inscription would have been written with nine letters, undivided, in other words, continuous, unvocalized, and therefore open to different interpretations. Just like when you're driving and you come to a stop sign and you're trying to interpret the license plate that that person paid extra money to get put on their car. And I bet you two or three people in the car could come up with different interpretations. Okay, it's something like unto that. The wise men were asked to read the consonants and interpret. This could only uh, take place by dividing the consonants and adding vowels. And this is where Daniel shows his true mettle. He says there are three different readings, all having to do with judgment. Daniel reads each of the three words for the three different meanings, all under the rubric of scales or weighing. In other words, Belshazzar, you have been weighed and found wanting, all representing God's judgment. And thus, now seriously and without humor, Daniel does demonstrate that he is indeed the one who can explain riddles and untie knots. He divides the nine consonants into three units of three letters each and then proceeds to give an interpretation of the three basic meanings of each unit. Daniel, in this instance of Scripture, shows himself to be a wise, courteous, and yet bold, truthful courtier. What about the rewards and the punishments, verses 29 to 31? At the end of the chapter, we observe the response of Belshazzar. Although he was not a regenerate man, he apparently believes the truth of what Daniel prophesied because he actually appointed Daniel to a very important administrative position, and he dressed him in purple, the sign, uh, the color, if you will, that regal and royal people would wear at that time. We've already commented on how he refused the gifts offered earlier, but now his disinterestedness has been proven, and so he can accept the gifts that Belshazzar lavishes upon him and the honors included. In verse 30, we read that Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was slain. There are many different accounts in the annals of history about what actually happened. Herodotus, for example, says that Cyrus preparing for a long time to besiege Babylon, approached the city. The Babylonians came out to engage him in battle. They were worsted. They retreated behind the walls. And so Cyrus diverted the Euphrates so his men through shallow water could pass and then besiege the city. Another Greek historian, Xenophon, also mentions the diverting of a stream which flowed through Babylon. What's interesting about his account of how Babylon fell and how Cyrus conquered is he describes a drinking festival going on at the time of the besieging of the city. Then there are other sources, like Barosus, which we know through Josephus, Nabonidus Chronicle, and finally the famous Cyrus Cylinder, which is now in the British Museum, unless it's on loan. Regardless of the messiness of the different accounts, none of them uh, are out of coherence with what we read here at the end of Daniel 5. Uh, namely the death of Belshazzar. 
Conclusion. Well, for the past five weeks, we have trod through the five, first five chapters of Daniel. Perhaps it would be good to have a brief review, not just of this chapter, but what Scripture has taught us and emphasized uh, in these past five weeks. First of all, we have noted time and again that these sections of Scripture are interested in especially confronting the pride of human kings and their breaches in justice against weaker people. From Daniel 1 all the way to the present chapter and beyond, a major concern of these stories has been to demonstrate that God is sovereign. The one true living God is sovereign. And he's the one that ultimately steers and guides international politics, local politics, and he's interested in the minutiae of his people down to the finest details. And this has been substantiated through the literary artistry of these chapters. For example, we looked at some inverted structures, the point of view of the various characters being described, the words, the puns that are employed, the constant theme of self-exaltation of kings and their abasement, God bringing them down when they exalt themselves. Daniel is a master storyteller. The narrator has shown the message, not just tell you the message, but shown it through his literary artistry. Not only do the rising and falling cadences of the chapters show the rise and fall of these great potentates, indeed, even today, we saw how comedy and humor was used to mark them out to be buffoons before the prophet and before their sovereign Lord God himself. Meanwhile, so many of the saints represented in these stories remain faithful. They actually excel in their vocations, in their hyphenated existence, being citizens of two kingdoms, captives and exiles in the kingdom of Babylon, but ultimately kingdoms of an eternal city yet to come. And although we saw in Daniel 2 that it taught that all earthly kingdoms will eventually come to an end, and God's kingdom will ultimately triumph and last forever. Daniel 1, 3, 4, and 5 have actually given us some rich examples and instruction on how to live a hyphenated existence as citizens of two kingdoms, submitting to the common grace structures that we find ourselves placed in, and yet maintaining ultimate resolute devotion to our liege and lord, our king of kings, Jesus Christ. This wonderful portion of scripture helps us on our pilgrim way, living gracefully in assimilated and devout ways in a secular context without accommodating or compromising our faith. Secular culture was not a threat to these pious Jews, nor is secular culture a threat ultimately to those of us who are walking in faith. There's much grist for the mill here regarding our current lives as Christians in this world, especially on the cusp of this election season. May God give us the grace and strength to be intelligent, informed voters. May God give us the grace and strength to be wise, shrewd, courteous, but bold servants of his in the culture in which he has placed us. May God give our brothers and sisters faithfulness and courage to stay true to our most holy faith 
those that find themselves, even some who have been present with us earlier in this last month, now in nations that have turned bestial and threaten, imprison, and even kill our brothers and sisters in Christ. May God make us courageous to stand for the truth when asked to equivocate on matters of faith and practice when we are pressured to compromise our convictions, especially regarding the canon of Scripture that has been bequeathed to us. And may God give us grace and strength to always and ever serve our Lord Jesus Christ and to never, no, never commit treason against him by giving in to worldly pressures.